Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, part of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Will Gibbons, author of Unlimited Replays, Video Games and Classical Music from Oxford University Press. This fascinating book confronts the questions that arise when something that most people think of as highbrow art becomes part of lowbrow mass entertainment. Although the combination of high and low culture is not new, video games are probably the newest form of uh, popular entertainment. From close readings of the scores of specific games to an analysis of the growing phenomenon of symphony orchestra concerts of video game music, my guest considers many aspects of the intersection of classical music and video games. Well, I'm so glad to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So my first question is really how you came to this project. I happen to know, because full disclosure, we share a uh, uh, dissertation advisor, that your dissertation and uh, your first book were about opera in um, sort of turn of the 20th century France. So how did you end up turning to ludomusicology, which, as you point out at the uh, end of your book, there are still some musicologists who are not very um, respectful of the field. So why did you decide to turn into this uh, from from something sort of so mainstream and center of musicology to something that's uh, a little bit more experimental? That's a great question. So I think, you know, on the one hand, this is a totally different topic, as you point out. This is my first book and dissertation were about um, the uses of 18th century opera and turn of the 20th century France. And this is about classical music and video games. And so on the on the surface, it seems like it's a totally different topic. And I think for my dissertation, which I was very interested in, uh, I felt like I needed to do a mainstream topic. I needed to do something that was sort of unquestionably, you know, musicology, uh, capital M. Um, and I, But I've always been interested in media studies. I've always been interested in film, television, and video games in particular. And for a number of years as an academic, I sort of felt like I needed to keep the video game loving part of myself, the sort of, you know, 12 year old that's always inside each of us, I I felt like I needed to keep that kind of suppressed. And that was just something I did to unwind when I got home from the library from my real research or something like that. And it wasn't until I was about halfway done with my um, dissertation that I was coming home from the library and I would turn on video games and I would think, wow, that bit of music there was really interesting or what they did here at this, you know, using Bach in this piece is so, uh, so thoughtful. And I realized there was enough going on um, in the music of video games uh, that it was equally worth writing about as anything else. And it was just as interesting to me, uh, perhaps more interesting to me as some of the other topics that I were working on. So, you know, as soon as I got into a Tinder track job and I got into where I wanted to be, I felt like this is the time for me to use some of the capital that I've gained and, and really go off in a different direction. Of course, by that time, I really wasn't blazing a new trail because there are so many other people also working on video game music that it got a little bit more legitimacy. We've had conferences for a few years now, and I haven't felt like I'm off working on my own. But as you say, there are certainly still some people who 
maybe think it's just a trendy topic and not really legitimate, or um, there are some points of resistance that a lot of us still face. But on the flip side of that, uh, although the topics seem totally different, in my mind, they're, they're quite closely connected. So the, the fir- dissertation in the first book were really about the uses of older music in um, this turn of the 20th century culture. And then in a certain sense, Unlimited Replays is really about the use of older, predominantly older music uh, in this modern context. So I, I really just kind of moved everything over about 100 years and uh, applied some of the same frameworks and lenses that I did in the first book. Well, I have to say that's one of the interesting things to me about reading this book, because there, as I said in the introduction, there is a long history of people looking at sort of older music in new in new contexts, I guess. And this is no different, I think, from from that, that sort of, I guess, that intellectual framework is the same one they're using in this book. But the ways that video games use music, some of them are, I think, ways that I recognize and others seem quite new So, or, or newer, I guess. So um, maybe we could, before we get sort of dive into specific examples, maybe we could zoom out a little bit and talk about kind of the larger questions that you're thinking about. And one was that you wrestled with was even how to define classical music. And anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that you talk about this um, as well in, in other forums. So what makes it so hard to even decide, you know, what is classical music and how do we even define it? Well, I think the conclusion that I've come to after thinking about this for a really long time is that classical music just isn't a thing. Uh, it, it's not real in a certain sense. And what I mean by that is there's no element that we can use or no criterion that we can apply to a piece of music that makes it unquestionably classical or not classical. Um, sort of like art, the label classical is whatever the listener or whatever the scholar or whatever, uh, you know, whoever else it has the chance to apply a label to it uh, thinks that it is. So, you know, if we decide Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is classical and not popular music, then that's a decision that we make. But, you know, it could just as easily be that someone thinks uh, Hans Zimmer's music is classical or that someone thinks uh, big band jazz is classical or, you know, it, it's there's no criterion that we can apply that works. And so part of that first chapter for me was figuring out how do I want to use this term or do I want to use this term classical music? Um, but I think it is a term that is really meaningful to people. And as, as you point out, my Twitter conversations, anytime I sort of challenge the idea of classical music, I get a lot of people that chime in to say, how dare you say that this music isn't classical or how dare you say this music isn't great, capital G, great. Um, so I think it's a, it's a term that has a lot of meaning for a lot of different constituents. And so I, I, th- I think it's, it's a problematic term, but it's one that we abandon at our peril because it's crucial to understanding why this music holds such value for people. Um, I think it's really easy to get lost in that term uh, and not think critically about music because we stop when we think, oh, this is classical, so I don't have to think critically about that anymore. I don't have to interrogate what I mean by that. It just has this baked in greatness um, that that exists outside of culture or time. That's bad. Um, But I I think we can't abandon it yet um, because it does have that value. Um, so as part of that conversation about the value of classical music or video games, right, it's, it's really all about cultural hierarchy, I think. You know, we decide that some things have more value than others. 
Um, and um, so, so I, one way to think about your book is that it's just a long examination of cultural hierarchy and what happens when people try to break down, um, either break down that cultural hierarchy or they're some, somehow manipulating people's ideas of cultural hierarchy. So I, I guess one question to ask about it is, what do you think goes into the decision that we've sort of made as a culture to say that classical music is highbrow and video games are lowbrow? Like, you know, where, how is that um, developed? And, 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 and do you think it's sort of reified by these games or are they breaking down that, um, that seemingly unbreakable barrier? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of how I think of the book as a whole as this examination of of kind of the ways that that highbrow culture and lowbrow culture um, create this friction between them. Um, even as we talk as cultural critics about how that's breaking down, it, it still has this um, potency, I think, in media. And as far as whether video games kind of reify that distinction or challenge it, I think the answer is both. Uh, I think some of the games that I looked at um, do reify the value of classical music. And, and one thing you'll see repeatedly is that classical music is associated with wealth in video games a lot of times or with um, sort of intelligence, sophistication, whiteness. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's very common in a game to, you know, if your character goes to a uh, party at a socially elite, you know, kind of charity ball or something like that, it's, it's quite common to have Mozart playing in the background or something like that, which it which it is in real life, too. So that makes sense. But those types of uh, um, uses of classical music tend to reinforce those class distinctions and the other um, stereotypes that we associate with it. On the other hand, there's quite a number of games that also challenge that where we have classical music associated with characters we normally wouldn't associate it with or um, situations where the music is remixed in such a way that it uh, brings it into dialogue with popular music styles, electronic dance music, or um, another style that we typically would associate as being, you know, kind of diametrically opposed to uh, classical music. Um, so do you think there's something that classical music does especially well in video games that, say, using pre-existent music or newly composed music doesn't do um, you see what I'm saying? Like, well, I guess I'm asking sort of a, a larger question of um, why bother using classical music and not something else? What What's special about it for for video game composers or developers? So I think there are a lot of reasons why game developers might choose to use a piece of classical music. Um, and it, it could widely vary, honestly. And, and one of the earliest reasons, and we see this in a lot of games from the late 70s, early 1980s, is that it was free. It was in the public domain. Maybe they didn't have the money to pay a composer to write something new, or they um, were under severe time deadlines. Um, and so they just thought, okay, I'm going to program in this little bit of uh, Bach, and then that's the end of it. Um, and it also happens to be with that era, especially in the early 80s to mid 80s, that the technology um, could only do, you know, maybe three, four uh, voices at a time. And so a lot of um, Baroque music, for example, really lent itself well to that kind of structure where, you know, OK, we can take this Bach um, two part invention. And it works really well with the fact that we have two melody lines or two melody channels that would work with the technology. 
so we've got the technological aspect and you've got the um, price aspect that um, led a lot of people in the early days, but that doesn't explain why we use it now. And I think the biggest element for me is that classical music or really any pre-existing kind of music, folk or pop or jazz, um, it carries baggage with it. And so it, it, it works as this kind of shorthand, right? You know, so we think about... Um, you know, we want to know something about a character. Well, if you walk into the room and they're listening to uh, Metallica, um, you make some assumptions about this character in a way that um, lets the developers convey a lot of information in a short amount of time. And it's that way with classical music a lot. If you walk into that space in a game and they have, uh, you know, Philip Glass playing, that tells you a lot because you associate certain sounds with um, uh different aspects of culture. So, you know, in the case of minimalism, maybe we associate it with technology or we associate it with urban settings or we associate it with intelligence. There's a lot of different um, baked in stereotypes or, or uh, kind of shorthand assumptions that we make based on what the music um, people are listening to or the music that it um, appears in the game. That aspect of stereotypes is what uh, one of the things that really interested me about your work and thinking about all these associations that have sort of built up over time with certain pieces or certain sounds mm -hmm. and how much video game developers are, um, are I guess, using that um, for their own ends. But as you point out, um, I, I mean, maybe you'll, you'll disagree with, with, how I'm baking this down, but it seems to me that there are sort of two, two kind of categories that you talk about. One is um, people that use music in this very thoughtful way, and you do these close analyses, and uh, you find all these levels of signification to the use of a particular piece or particular repertoire or whatever. And then others who, who don't seem to have or don't aren't exhibiting that same kind of care with the music. And so there's sort of like, if you really start thinking about it as a musicologist, what they're doing doesn't make sense, or it, it seems historically inaccurate, or the nationality is wrong, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, do, do you think that sort of second category works as well? Or does it not matter, really, in the end, to sort of the average player, how thoughtful this those musical choices might be. That's one of the things that sort of kept me up at night while I was writing the book is I kept thinking, am I overthinking this? <laughs> you know, is, is this me applying this um, really critical um, lens to something that I'm understanding in a way that 99% of gamers are not understanding uh, in the same way that I do. And so uh, I think it does matter. I think it's worthwhile to really interrogate those choices, but you're right. There are a lot of instances where, um, something would bother me. A choice would bother me. Um, so a great example of that is um, uh, in the game uh, Quest for Glory 4, um, where you walk into this, it's set in this sort of generic Eastern European setting, and you walk into this bar um, where you're going to spend a lot of time in the game. And most of the music has been newly composed, and it's all about this kind of Eastern European flair. And all of a sudden, there's this piece by the composer, um, Edvard Grieg, um, and it's sort of supposed to sound Eastern European, I guess. But in my mind, I'm thinking, well, Grieg is this Norwegian composer. He's the Norwegian composer, and we associate his style with this very Scandinavian outlook and culture and, and folklore. And so to me, it was this egregiously wrong choice 
Um, but then I had to step back and say, well, I wonder, you know, if you didn't know Grieg, uh, as I didn't when I played that game the first time, it seemed perfectly fine. It was a great choice. It was one of my favorite pieces in the game. Um, so it's only, you know, the fact that I've developed this this uh, set of associations with that music myself that made it not work. Um, and I think there are a lot of other instances uh, that were like that for me where I thought, mm, this is not the piece I would have chosen or I don't know about this, um, where, you know, maybe I'm in the, the minority in terms of um, the way that people would listen. On the flip side, I think, you know, the fact that I have this um, background in music history, let me really appreciate some choices. There are times where um, I think a game designer, probably audio producer would um, put in this classical piece that was just exactly perfect. And it, maybe it had some kind of biographical connection to what's happening, or um, I just happen to know that it's a piece that's also used in this obscure film that kind of connects thematically to this uh, thing that we're talking about here in the game. And, and I just would take a second to, to really appreciate that person and the kind of connection and the thoughtfulness that they use to make that. Um, I'm not sure that that always is the case where there's that level of thoughtfulness. And especially when we're talking about the earlier games, I think they did have a tendency to just kind of slap whatever they could slap in there. Um, but by and large, I think, you know, it's pretty sophisticated these days. People are making um, smart choices and, and every aspect of games gets really kind of rigorously thought out. That does bring up one thing I was wondering, um, and you don't ad address it in the book, but I imagine that you know the answer to this. Um, how how does music end up in a game? Like, do they all have composers, or um, I mean, you're, you say that it you know early in the industry it's different than now. So let's just think about now. Like, how how do those choices get made? Who makes those choices? Is it the programmer or someone else? I, I have to say, I'm not. I don't know a lot about video games. I, my children play them, but I do not. So. <laughs> No, sure. And and actually, the answer is it depends. Um, so in some cases, almost like uh, we think about auteur filmmakers like, uh, you know, uh, Wes Anderson or Quentin Tarantino or those people who make all their own musical choices in their films. There are those people in games as well, where you have um, game designers who really want control over the music and they, they're thinking about that in terms of, um, you know, for this scene, I want this particular song or this particular something. Um, on the other hand, sometimes there's an audio supervisor, and that can be the composer uh, sometimes who's also implementing other aspects of the audio in addition to newly composed music. But sometimes it's someone totally different. So in some cases, I'll talk to a composer of a game and say, how did you decide that, uh, you know, your piece would cut out and then this um, classical piece would start here? And the composer will say, oh, I had nothing to do with that. That was the audio supervisor. I just wrote this piece and they kind of put it in there and did the tweaking later on. So it really um, is up to a lot of different factors. Uh, and, and so sometimes it's, um, it's a really unsung role, I think, this audio supervisor role that, that actually does a lot of the implementation. Um, and I think about it like in film, we have, you know, the editors, orchestrators, all these um, people who are kind of working on the music behind the scenes that don't maybe have the same cachet as uh, you know, John Williams or Hans Zimmer. Um, but they're, they're nonetheless absolutely crucial in putting it together. And part of the reason that I left it out of the book, as you point out, is that um, it's really hard to get that information sometimes. Uh, it's, it's um, you know, sometimes you'll contact a game developer and say, hey, who was working on this? And they'll say, mm, I don't know, could have been this person or this person. I'm, we're not really sure um, who has the rights to that. We don't know anymore. 
Um, and, and so uh, I sort of took the easy way out and, and thought more about the relationship between the, the text and the player more than I thought about the relationship between the creators and the text, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And actually, I did wonder how much you talked to uh, people who are producing these games as I was reading, because it, it didn't look to me that you quoted anything from personal interviews, though I, I don't know that I looked at every footnote. So, um, But uh, do you talk to, to uh, people who are, are working with these video games? It sounds like you do, even if that might not have necessarily made it into the book either. Sometimes I do, formally or informally. Um, places like Twitter are great for that, where you can kind of engage in an in a, um, informal way with uh, game developers and sound designers. Um, but no, I, I sort of thought at the very beginning of writing this book, do I want to do almost an ethnographic approach where I'm trying to track this down and figure out why they use these different um, classical pieces or what were they thinking at that time? Um, at, at a certain point, I made a conscious decision. No, I really want to do this sort of... Um, text-based uh, critical approach where I, I didn't want to get too swayed. And it's not to say that I, as a person, don't care why they made those choices. Um, but to a certain extent, you know, it, it doesn't matter in how the player perceives it. I mean, you know, um, there are certain examples of classical music in games where uh, I would be just absolutely heartbroken to find out that it was just, you know, whatever was on that CD that was in someone's, uh, you know, CD player in 1995 uh, because it seems to me like it's this absolutely perfect, um, well thought out gem of a choice. Um, and so, you know, to a certain extent, I, I don't want to get into the intention of the creators because uh, it might really shift um, the way that I understand things when we don't really need to do that in order to appreciate the art or to, to try and understand it a little bit more. Well, I agree. I mean, I think we can take in this case, it's sort of the authorial intention too far. It doesn't, as I always tell my students, as soon as it's out there, everyone who creates something loses loses it after that, right? And it's all about how people perceive it. And, um, That's exactly right. Uh, and so, obviously, as you know, this book would have been very interesting as an ethnographic study, but it would have been a completely different book then. It would have... Um, I think you could not have done a lot of the um, a lot of the analysis that you do if what you were really doing was talking about kind of the industry of audio production in um, and and classical music and video games. It would have mm -hmm. been. I mean, I, you just couldn't have written this book had you. I think had you done a lot of of that sort of study. At least I don't know what, how you feel about it, but it would have been quite different. Absolutely, and I should sort of add that I think the industry is a little bit suspicious of um, academics. And, and I've found, you know, in my interactions, I've been to a few conferences, I've been to the Game Developers Conference and a few other settings, and um, I've been not as active in the industry as some other um, scholars have been, but I have tried to reach out on some occasions just so I understand the implementation a little bit more. How does this all work? And, and some people have been very nice, and um, that's been great. And some people are just sort of suspicious of the idea, you know, and they're, they're sort of nervous, I think, about what academics might say or, or um, uh, nervous maybe that we're, we're just looking for a reason to look down on them or to, um, uh, to kind of overanalyze or to, uh, you know, in, in some way challenge what they're doing. And I don't think that's the case, but I, I understand why that is the way that it is. Um, so... I think that's another factor. And I, I am very respectful of my colleagues who choose to 
um, engage a little bit more and, and do those interviews and get out and figure out exactly what people were doing because it's important work. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, well, let's uh, circle back to, around to the content of the book. And one of the things that um, I was interested in was, um, excuse me, um, you know, I, I tell my students all the time that there's no new idea under the sun. It's just um, we can certainly trace back sort of the the uh, genesis of ideas as things change, as technology changes and culture changes. But there's always we can always find a, a, a thread to pull on, so to speak. And one of the things that that you talk a, a lot about is um, it's pretty clear that there are a lot of um, ways that the way that music in film scores and TV scores are used is, is can often be very similar to the way that music is used in uh, video games, you know, that it's a way to kind of um, add to the visual element and, and sort of deepen the idea of what a character is or what they're, um, you know, where they're living or, uh, you know, what their social standing is, whatever, which is used in mm -hmm. film scores all the time. Um, but one big difference is that interactivity, you know, once, once the, that TV show is out there, it's out there and it's never going to change. But in a video game, there's this sort of, I suppose there's not an infinite way a game can be played, but within those parameters, it, it can change enormously. So do you think, how does that change uh, or does it change the way that, um, that music can be used in these video, in, in video games as opposed to other types of visual media that have a score with it? Absolutely. That's been the, the biggest challenge, I think, for game music studies has been figuring out how to deal with that interactive element. And so um, when we're looking at newly composed music, we're typically looking at the ways that um, composers choose to um, loop or to layer the music in such a, in such a way that it, it lends itself well to interactivity. And classical music doesn't have that same freedom by and large. I mean, you know, the... Um, you might take five minutes to finish this level of a game and you might take 20 minutes, but, uh, you know, um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony stays the same length no matter what you do. So I think they, there is some creativity in how they have to implement in games. So in some cases, um, they choose works that are really easy to loop. Uh, you know, uh, uh, classical pieces that have a lot of repeats in them uh, make it really easy to just keep it going for however long. Um, more recently, you see a lot of music that's coming from sources within the game. So, uh, radios, for example, that make it reasonable that, um, this music would exist at a certain time and then it would stop when it's done, or it would, um, you know, be on replay if it's, you know, playing on, uh, some sort of, uh, electronic medium or something in a game. Uh, so I think you have to come up with these kind of creative and, and uh, clever ways to implement it in the game versus um, in film where you can do more kind of second to second choreographing. I mean, if we think about the way that Stanley Kubrick, for example, uses classical music in his films, which I talk about some in the, uh, in the book as well, um, Kubrick is really like second to second choreographing what's going on on, on screen with the um, 
the visuals and the music, right? You know, and uh, you can't really do that in games except in cutscenes, which are like sort of miniature movies within the game. Um, so I, I, while a lot of the same characteristics carry over or the same techniques carry over between media, I think games are um, unique in that respect and present um, challenges. And on the other hand, they present opportunities because players can sort of make the music feel as if it's um, choreographed to what they're doing, or they can, in fact, choreograph how they're acting as a player to coincide with the music. I'm really bad for that as a player myself, that I will, you know, sometimes if I can sense that I'm at the end of a level and I'm not at the end of the music, I will sort of slow down and wait until they're going to line up at the right time. And then uh, I feel like I can move on. Okay. I had no idea that people played games thinking about the score like that. That's very cool. <laughs> there's actually in, uh, there's a, a great uh, chapter in Carrie Miller's book um, uh, about um, Grand Theft Auto where she talks about how a lot of players would, you know, circle around this uh, town until they found the right song on the radio. And then they could sort of go on and do the next task that they were supposed to do. But it was finding the right song was absolutely crucial before you could go on to the next in their, their kind of player experience. Well, I think that's fascinating because that interactivity where people care that much about the music, um, that it, it materially affects not only their experience of the game, but how they choose to play it. Um, I mean, that suggests that at least for some players, the score is one of the more important things about the game. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, and I think, you know, Kevin Donnelly, a film music scholar, calls music a, a subtle medium of manipulation in media. And I, I think there is a certain element to that where um, in games, I think oftentimes the music is working on us in ways that we don't even realize. So it may be that you're playing the game in a certain way. You're you're choosing what actions to undertake as a player based on cues that you maybe don't even necessarily consciously acknowledge that you know the music is telling you to be sneaky here in this one spot, or the music is telling you to hurry, um, and it influences the way that you change the game, even if you know practically speaking, there's no difference. So you brought up Stanley Kubrick, and I, I did want to um, discuss that chapter, actually, um, because it was quite interesting. Um, you found a number of games that um, you found connections, I guess, to the work of Stanley Kubrick and the music that he uses in his movies. And I said two questions about that. One is, could you just sort of talk about that for, for people who are listening? Um, because I think it, it, it's quite a fascinating um, connection. But also, um, I wondered if he was unusual or that, or in other words, there's not another chapter that's about uh, another director like that. Or, um, you know, you mentioned some other connections between video, uh, video games and film, but um, you don't have another chapter that's specifically on a particular director. So is, is that because there's really not another one like that? Um, Or, or did you just decide that Kubrick was a good example of that sort of um, connection? I can't think of another film director who's as closely associated with classical music as Kubrick is. Um, And I think it would be possible to write similar chapters about other types of music. Um, You might think about uh, Quentin Tarantino's uses of popular music in his films. I think there's a lot of similarities to the ways that pop music gets used in games. So that's a chapter that, that someone could write, or maybe I'll write that. Don't steal my ideas. Um, But uh, I think Kubrick is really unique in that respect um, as far as classical music goes. Um, and his films are so thoughtful in their uses of classical music. Whether you like the films or not, 
I think you have to acknowledge the amount of thought and his um, encyclopedic knowledge of, of classical music really from the Baroque to the present um, really changed the way that his films work from 2001 onwards. So what I found um, in looking at some of the uh, different game examples from that chapter was that, you know, the, the particular pieces had gotten so closely identified with Kubrick's films. So I'm thinking of maybe the Blue Danube Waltz in the um, space station docking scene in uh, 2001, or um, the uh, Henry Purcell um, funeral music for um, Queen Mary from the beginning of Clockwork Orange, where those pieces, you know, have have almost become more associated with the film than they have with their kind of classicalness. And so in a sense, any reference to them in a game is more of a reference to Kubrick's movies than it is to the original classical piece. So um, to look at a couple of examples from that chapter, there's a, a long running series of space simulation games called elite. And it started off, you know, way back as this, um, uh, really early effort to uh, get a three-dimensional space flight simulation game. Um, and at a certain point in the early design of that, they thought, well, how do we make this more evocative of 2001? And so there's a part of the game where you're involved in um, space station. You dock your um, ship at a space station. And they put in this really rudimentary version of uh, the Blue Danube Waltz in this really clear reference to um, Kubrick. And that's one where, you know, the designers really do say that repeatedly in interviews that that's, that was their inspiration. So there's no, um, that's not just me, but it's continued on and on and on. And even in the very recent versions of elite, um, which have come out just a few years ago, um, they still have that every time you're docking, you know, your, your computer in your um, uh, spaceship will begin playing the blue Danube waltz. And it's, uh, it's this reference, and it sort of layers on itself over and over and over again. So maybe if you've never seen 2001, but you've played a lot of different Elite games, you think it's just this running thing between the Elite games. Oh, they're just referring back to, uh, you know, the previous Elite game, and that refers back to this, and that refers back to this. Um, and then eventually you lose the fact that it's referring back to the, uh, um, the Kubrick film. So that's one where I think you're just stacking layers on top of each other. Um, and it's a clear sort of homage in that case. I think it's a it's a desire to evoke the beauty and the feelings that you get from playing this, um, uh, the beauty and the feelings you get from watching the film while you're playing the game, um, which at the beginning had really basic graphics. Um, it was not the same as watching uh, 2001, and uh, but now it still is. It, 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 I mean, it's quite beautiful, the new Elite games, and they look um, even in a sense better than 2001, the movie does. Um, but you know, we still have this connection between those media. In other examples, it's more of a parody. Um, there are a lot of games that will use the beginning of Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra as a sort of a way to parody the beginning of 2001. Or um, I talk a lot about the game uh, Conquer's Bad Fur Day, which um, the intro to that game is a, is a just uh, almost shot-for-shot shot, uh, remake parody of the beginning of A Clockwork Orange, which is, of course, a very serious uh, adult film. But um, Conquer's Bad Fur Day is this sort of comic, um, you know, game about a, a foul-mouthed squirrel that, um, you know, goes around doing all sorts of uh, inappropriate things. And so it's this uh, almost this parody aspect of the, the film. But again, 
it really wouldn't make sense unless you knew the Kubrick film. Um, so it's just this kind of Easter egg that they put in there for, for people who uh, uh, happen to be familiar with that work. Um, I, I, I liked that chapter because of exactly what you're talking about, that it showed how um, that signification for a particular piece grows over time and you can lose the original um, or one of the original associations, but that doesn't mean that that association is still gone, right? Um, so mm -hmm. I thought that was an, an excellent example of that um, of that phenomenon, which happens in a lot of other ways. And um, we could, you know, look at a lot of other examples of that outside of video games. And I think it's important to to see how that's that's sort of reaching um, the, that, the people that are playing these games and what might they be thinking of these mm -hmm. pieces of sort of iconic music that get used in multiple, you know, in, in a lot of different um, contexts. And, and that made me sort of think about, um, you know, there's this sort of long argument about, well, if we have classical music and we put it in in more um, appealing forms, right? It's in a pops concert or it's the background to a commercial or a video game or whatever. That is going to bring people to classical music. And in fact, you talk about the phenomenon of symphony orchestras playing um, uh, concerts of video game music. And one of the arguments to do that is, oh, this is going to, this is going to be how classical music is going to get away from being highbrow. And we're going to bring people into the love of classical music because they've heard the Blue Danube waltz and, and now they're interested in Strauss or, you know, or they've heard also Sprach, Zarathustra or whatever. And now they love 19th century um, uh, tone poems. Do you, do you think there's any chance that that's going to work? Cause it hasn't worked up to this point, but you know, is, is this going to be, uh, you know, do you really think people become drawn to a particular repertoire because it's in their favorite video game or, or, you know, is that just a fool's errand? Well, I don't know that it's a fool's errand in the sense that I, I do think it's providing a lot of revenue for symphony orchestras, um, for example, that are, are you know, cash strapped. Um, so I think in a, in a certain sense, these concerts are really doing orchestras and um, the classical music world a, a, a big favor. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I, I think it is maybe in a sense misguided to try and use video game music or film music as a, a kind of a gateway drug, if you will, to, to classical music. You know, it, it's sort of, you know, it's like, oh, well, you've had a, if you like hamburgers, you must like, you know, steaks or something like that. No, it's okay to like one and not like the other one. And it doesn't necessarily need to lead to another, uh, another element. So, you know, I do hear that a lot um, from even from the people who put on the the video game music concerts that you'll see in interviews. They'll say, well, it's my hope that if they enjoy this music from uh, Final Fantasy, that uh, they'll come back to the next concert, which is, uh, you know, Shostakovich and Prokofiev. And you're thinking, well, OK, maybe. But if they do come back to the next concert, are they going to enjoy it or are they going to be back to sort of being alienated? Um, so one of the, one of the main arguments that um, I see is that people who go to video game concerts feel like for the first time they're welcome in a, a concert hall that they 
Um, they didn't have to put on fancy clothes and they, they understood the rules. You know, that's, that's a thing. You know, whenever you go to a classical concert, there are all these unspoken rules. You don't clap between movements. You don't, you know, unwrap your candy during the soft parts. You don't um, talk to people. You don't get on your phone. There are all these sorts of regulations um, that we just aren't obviously technically enforced, but they're culturally enforced, right? We look at people weird if they do things or we'll hush people if they clap at the wrong time. But it's not like that at a lot of the game concerts. They encourage interaction. They encourage people to tweet. They like taking photos. They uh, let people cheer when their favorite pieces come on. Um, and so I imagine if that's your experience with classical concerts and you like that, and then you go to the concert the next weekend and it's uh, more in the traditional mold, you know, it might be a, a big disappointment. And so I, I would hope that um, arts organizations will realize that these are different things and that one's not necessarily better or worse than the other one. And uh, I've had the pleasure of working with a few different um, ensembles that have put on game music concerts. And uh, I've, I've seen uh, the process that the orchestra goes through or the, the ensemble goes through sometimes where um, the musicians start out maybe a little bit skeptical sometimes. And then by the end, they're saying, wow, I've never had an audience respond that way. I've never felt people that were so connected to what we were doing or so enthusiastic about what we're doing. So um, I think there's a learning experience on all sides that goes on with that. And there hopefully we'll all recognize that there are multiple ways to engage with um, symphonic music that don't necessarily equate or, you know, um, require people to go on this journey where, um, you know, they start by playing video games and they end up being musicologists uh, at the end. Um, yeah, I, I do think the, um, I, I, I find anyway with my students who often don't know anything about classical music when they take a class with me, that it's really not the music that turns them off. It's the culture or what they think of is the culture mm -hmm. around it. And um, if we can maybe get that sorted, we'd have a better chance of uh, moving classical music back down the cultural hierarchy, um, as you say. That's exactly right. And, and I think part of it is, you know, we've got to learn to meet, uh, meet halfway on this where, you know, it's fine to put video game music in the concert hall. And I think that's great. Um, and I think it's great to appreciate this music, um, for its outstanding musical qualities. Um, but yeah, I, I think we need to not classify it in a certain sense. We need to not, um, pretend as if it is, um, the same coming from the same cultural context that, um, you know, Beethoven or, um, Clara Schumann or somebody like that are coming from that. It, it is its own context and it's got its own sets of expectations and rules. And, and I think, um, Orchestras are going to have to recognize that, or they'll they'll sort of remain out of touch. Yeah, I I agree completely, and I, and actually that's one of the sort of thoughts I had when I asked you the question early on in the interview about does this reify that same cultural hierarchy? Because one reason these um, references work is that, like you said, so often the reference is to um, rich, rich people, white people, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, sort of, um, if we can call high class, uh, moments, like you said, you know, the, a, a, a um, cocktail party or something like that. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's really not a lot of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard to overcome those associations because they are so baked in and, Video games are baking those in just like lots of other uses of classical music in popular media. So it's, it's uh, more than just exactly. orchestras that are, have an invested interest in, in keeping those 
That's right. Associations. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy. It, it, it's easy, right? It's a it's a quick way of indicating, oh, this person is, uh, you know, rich and sophisticated is to, to just show that they're listening to classical music. And um, I, I think that's a really quick and efficient way of conveying that information. And um, I most appreciate it when that sort of gets turned on its head, when you have instances where, um, you know, in film, we think about, you know, uh, Hannibal Lecter, for example, there's that wonderful scene where he's, you know, sort of committing atrocities while listening to Bach, or um, we see this a lot in in games as well, where you're sort of juxtaposing these scenes of, of violence or um, uh, villainous actions from um, antagonists with their loving of classical music. And so it kind of problematizes that in an interesting way. That was actually going to be my next question was sort of, we can't go through all of the chapters in your book, unfortunately, but can you pick out one example that you think is maybe counterintuitive or might surprise people? Because I think, frankly, a lot of the uses that you talk about are so similar to the ways that um, film scores and TV scores use classical music, like you said, sort of here's a rich wealthy, you know, here's a rich person, here's a sophisticated apartment or whatever. Um, can you think, uh, can you maybe give our listeners an example that is um, a little more um, like counterintuitive or uh, challenges some of those really baked in stereotypes that get used all the time in media f- um, when they use classical music? I think there's an excellent use of classical music in the game um, Catherine. That's one of the games that I devote a whole chapter to. Um, and I, I'm trying to make an argument in that chapter that um, classical music gets remixed with popular music styles in a way that um, kind of uncomfortably or grotesquely um, combines these disparate things. And I think you know, to me, that's a really innovative way of thinking about classical music, which is typically used as this sort of beautiful music um, in a certain sense that it's, it's aesthetically enjoyable and it's conveying this idea of art or sophistication or um, beauty in some way. And I think Catherine really lets it be ugly at some points, lets the the combinations of popular music and um, classical music be disturbing in a way that matches some of the context of the rest of the game, which is about, um, I think, dualities and choosing between um, very different options uh, in the course of our life. You know, the protagonist of that game is choosing with, do I want to uh, sort of grow up and be an adult and get married and have kids? Do I want to stay in this kind of uh, uh, dead-end job that I have and and, um, sort of stay in my youthful routines? Um, Which of these two women are the best path forward for me? And then the game itself is juxtaposed between the sort of daytime and the night where it's this sort of disturbing, um, almost horror puzzle game. I know that's really hard to... uh, imagine, but it is a a, a sort of a terrifying experience sometimes. Um, And it's all about making you uncomfortable. And I think the ways that it takes sort of well-known classical pieces and um, mixes them with popular pieces in in sort of um, ways that they work on a musical level, but they're also a little bit uneasy. uh, To me, that was one of the more creative uses of classical music that I came across in the book. And it's one that I don't think would have worked in any other kind of uh, medium. It's hard for me to imagine that happening in a, a TV show or a film. Uh, I think it was really um, 
something that's unique to the gameplay experience. Um, yeah, I thought that was a, a really interesting example as well. I'm glad you brought it out. Oh, thanks. Um, so I have one quick technical question for you. Sure. Do you have like a museum of video game systems at your <laughs> house? Because you talk about games that you clearly played that go from the 80s to the present. I mean, do you act, how do you do that? So I do have quite a number of uh, consoles at home. I've got everything from an Atari 2600 up till I've um, got a Nintendo Switch and a PlayStation 4 and sort of everything in between. So I'm really lucky that I, I, I grew up playing a lot of games and I didn't throw a lot of them away. Um, and so I still have this library, not, not, uh, not, you know, to the extent that some other people do, but it's enough that helps me um, have a frame of reference. Um, I will say also in 2019, YouTube is amazing um, for this. And so there are games that I just could not get a hold of. I tried to find them and I just couldn't, couldn't find them. And then on YouTube, there'll just be a complete playthrough of the game where I can just watch someone else do it. Um, and that works as a time-saving measure. And it also allows me to experience games um, that I, I just have no other way of accessing. And there also are a number of museums now that have sprung up. I'll, um, I'll mention the Strong Museum in, in Rochester that um, has an enormous library of video games. Uh, University of Michigan has an excellent video game archive that you can go in. Um, and I'll say TCU just a, a couple of years ago started a um, video game lab and library here um, that was started not by me, actually, but by some other faculty members who um, work on games. So um, we are seeing these sorts of archives, um, but you bring up a, a real challenge with studying video games and video game music is this sort of technological obsolescence, right? I mean, you know, and unless you have the right exact right technology and it happens to still work, um, it's difficult to get a hold of some of these older games. And so um, uh, archiving video games and archiving video game music is actually a, a real challenge for the field. And it's something that people are starting to take seriously and, and, and start to invest in. Well, I, I often think about how are scholars in the future going to deal with our period where everything's emailed and, um, it, you know, everything is going to be obsolete and they can't read it. It's, it's going to be a huge challenge. I kind of feel sorry for the uh, historians of 2119. <laughs> oh, absolutely. How, well, to, how to access us, uh, for sure. Some, sometimes I will reach out to a game composer and I'll say, you know, do you have, especially when I first started working on this, I would write to them and I'd say, do you have a score I can see? And they'd say, score? Uh, you know, that they don't have the music. It's a file. And they would say, well, I can send you the file. Um, but you know, um, then you have to have the, the right technology to open the file and know what you're looking at when you do open it up. And then sometimes, unfortunately, I'd, I'd reach out to people and they'd say, um, oh yeah, I, I have that on a floppy disk somewhere from 1992 and I, uh, I don't know where it is and I don't know who has access to it and I don't even have the right drive anymore to, to look at that. Um, so there's a lot out there that's just lost or it's really difficult to get a hold of. Um, so I, I hope that by uh, 2119 we'll have figured it out, but I, I do have concerns about it. Yeah, we could be the new Middle Ages, right? Where exactly <laughs> we have just bits and snatches of information that people make these huge uh, assumptions about because that's all we've got. And, uh, you know, I 
Well, I guess we'll find out, but it is certainly, I had no idea that there were video game archives in these different university libraries. So I, I think that's fascinating that people have already started to think about how to preserve that part of our culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really important. And I, I feel like in terms of music, one of the the negative aspects that are going to come out of that, if we're not careful, is um, something that actually relates back to the concerts we were talking about. I'm just working on a project now on um, uh the ways in which those video game concerts create narratives of video game music history and video game history uh, writ large. And I think what's starting to happen is that um, we're replicating the problems of the old canon, uh, the, the classical canon, because we're, we're tending to focus in on the same five or 10 composers and the same games and the same, uh, you know, game systems. And they tend to be the ones that are really easily available now. Um, and so, you know, there are so many concerts of the music from Final Fantasy, um, the music by Nobuo Uematsu, or the music um, from Zelda games, uh, most of which is by uh, um, Koji Kondo. And uh, that's great. I love that music. But um, what's happening is that music is becoming widely available. Those composers are sort of becoming the new Mozart and Beethoven. And um, we're losing a lot, I think, by not... Um, reaching out to the lesser known um, composers and, and exploring the lesser known games from that time period, because that music's just sort of falling through the cracks and getting lost. Um, and I think we're, we're having a tendency right now to um, um, focus on the materials that are easiest for, uh, for us to obtain um, and perform. And uh, it runs the risk of uh, creating a lot of problems later on where we look back at game history and we only think that there were 10 composers working much the same way we look back at, you know, 1750 to 1800. And we talk about three composers. It's always, you know, as if there were only um, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven working in, in Europe at that time. I think we'll look back and say, oh, maybe there are only five game composers writing music in the 1990s because they're the only ones that ever get performed. Well, that was actually one of my questions that, um, that I thought about was, um, it, you know, it seems to me, it, it looked to me like there's really a repertoire of music that people use, or at least a repertoire of composers that seem more popular than others, but maybe that's not true. Did you, do you think there is sort of a classical music repertoire that gets, is starting to get used over and over again? So we're canonizing, you, you know, like you were talking about canonizing uh, particular composers who are writing new music, but there's, it, is there a canon of, um, a style or composers or pieces that get used over and over in video games as well? Oh, absolutely. I would say, you know, this is not an actual statistic, but one of the ones that I'm just making up, I'd say maybe 80% of the classical music in video games is from the same kind of classical music top 40 um, category. And it's the ones that you'd find on, you know, like the classical music for people who hate classical music albums. Um uh, you know, it's the Bach, Toccata, and Fugue over and over again. It's Mozart, Anna Kleine, Nacht music over and over again. It's um, uh, bits of uh, Swan Lake and uh, the Nutcracker from Tchaikovsky. Um, it's it's the same sort of, um, I don't want to say pops, but the sort of like um, top 40 of classical music, the stuff you'll hear over and over again on classical radio um, that gets used. And it's very seldom kind of what I would think of as like a deep cut um, not very often did I encounter pieces where I thought, wow, I don't know what that is. Um, I need to go look that up or, or, you know, Shazam that or something to, to figure out, um, what it was. And, and I was always, it was pretty remarkable to me when that did happen, 
And uh, one interesting instance that a couple of people have written about is the game uh, Civilization IV, um, which Karen Cook, for example, has a great article about. Um, and the, almost the entire soundtrack of that game is classical, um, but it's all implemented by the same uh, game designer who had a classical music background and basically went through and chose um, all of this classical music. And some of them are sort of obscure choices. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen an interview with that uh, game designer where he says, oh, yeah, I, you know, uh, I liked this piece when I heard an ensemble play it in college or something. And so I remember that. So it, it's this idiosyncratic view of music history that comes from this one person's um, lived experience. But other than that, I, I think a lot of times game designers um, maybe don't have this really deep knowledge of the classical music repertoire. So they're choosing from the, the pieces that they know through other media or through um, a quick search of, of classical works. Or they're looking for uh, music that they'll think players recognize, um, which sort of um, restricts you to a certain repertoire as well. Well, um, I think we should probably wrap this up, but this is such a fascinating discussion. I could sit and talk to you all day about this. But um, before we leave, can you tell us what you're working on right now, what we can expect from you um, going forward, since obviously you have uh, this book came out in 2018. So um, presumably you've moved on to new projects. That's right. So in August 2019, I have an edited collection or a co-edited collection with um, Stephen Reale from Youngstown State. Um, and it's devoted to music and role-playing games. So a lot of interesting chapters in there about um, looking at through the lens of a particular genre and how um, music works there. Um, I'm also uh, thinking about a book about teaching video game music in um, music history classrooms, a short volume. Um, so looking at how that might work. I think my next big monograph will be on some of the issues that we've talked about today, which is about classical music uh, as an idea through history and, and uh, what it means then and when did we get into this mess and how do we get out? Well, all that sounds wonderful and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing, uh, seeing all that and, and looking at your new work. Um, so I think we'll wrap it up, but um, I'm, my name's Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, and we've been discussing unlimited replays, video games, and classical music with uh, William Gibbons, and thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to thank me. Thank you. Such a pleasure. <laughs>